Wakanda forever. Just saying, just saying. We're going to let Vanessa come. We forgive her for her. Not everybody has the Marvel revelation yet, but we're, we're going to pray her in. We're going to pray her in. So good. Hey, how about Sharon Thomas last week, that message on directional living? So good. So good. We're excited about just this theme that we feel like that God has just been showing us about how we make decisions in life and, and uh, maybe just broadening your view of Christianity uh, beyond a moral conversation. And so we're going to be in this idea of, of directional living that, that really was birthed out of Easter as we began to study in the story of Emmaus. And so I just want to do a little bit of a, a recap for where we uh, started a couple of weeks ago, just talking about the cross of Christ, because I think so oftentimes we think about the cross uh, as it relates to what Jesus did for us, and sometimes we forget the cross is for us too. In, in Colossians 1.20, talking about what the cross is for Christ, and again, how we've celebrated communion tonight already, it says, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everyone in heaven and on earth by means of the blood on the cross. First Peter 2.24 says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. But the cross isn't just for Jesus. The cross is for you and the cross is for me. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in his letter to Galatians, the church of, of Galatia. It says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We think about 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved, it is the very power of God. This idea of dying to give us life, it seems a little bit odd, but unless we understand the death that needs to happen on the inside, that life will not come. Matthew 16.24 says, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is the verse that we really springboard off of for this idea of directional living because as Jesus is talking about the cross that we need to bear, right? He bears the cross. It's an example also for us for the cross we bear. He begins to talk about this idea of dying to self and his emphasis though is on a direction that we live. The, the emphasis on following him. The emphasis on the, the direction our life is headed in. And I think if we're not careful, as we've been talking about in this series, that if we don't see this idea of directional living, that too often our concept and our conversation of Christianity will drift just to the place of talking about morality. If we only see the death of the cross that we have to die as a death of desire, it becomes problematic in a couple of ways. And the first one is this. If you only view this bearing the cross or dying to self as a, as a death of desire, what happens for people, and you've seen it, and maybe you've seen it in your own life, is that your behavior doesn't change until the desire begins to change. And what happens then is that you don't change because the desire doesn't go away easily. But what Jesus is trying to say to you and what he's trying to say to me is unless you are willing to change the direction your life is moving in, then the desire will never shift. It's part of his teaching when he says where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Now he means a lot of things when he says that, but one thing that he means is that right feelings follow right actions. 
is that as you begin to shift the direction of your life, as we're going to talk about tonight, whether it's the ways of God, which talks about issues of morality, or the plans of God, which talks about matters of purpose, like your vocation and where you're going to live and who you're going to marry and the children that you're going to have, you have to be willing to change your direction. Even You might desire to go this way, but you know that God wants you to go that way. You've got to change your direction, and eventually your desire will follow. If you only think of Christianity as it relates to morals, you will begin to adopt a mindset and a mentality that when it comes to the purpose decision of your life, or again, what we call the plans of God, you will have a sense that it's all up to you for those choices. Dying to self and taking up your cross, being crucified with Christ is first about embracing the direction of God's ways and God's plan. So let's put the graph up that we've been looking at. And I'm not going to review all of this. You can go back a couple of weeks and how we talk about the prophetic imagery of Emmaus and Sodom and Gomorrah and Jerusalem and where that falls on a map and how we believe that out, out of that geography, there's a prophetic picture that God's trying to show to us. The, the ways of God versus the ways of people, again, that's talking about moral issues. And we're going to get to that in this series. What does the Bible call sin? Why are some things wrong and other things not? And who gets to decide? And, and and, and are there different categories of sin? And I would say to the answer, yes. And we're going to be talking about in that series. And I think for most people, Christianity is a moral conversation. But Jesus and all throughout scriptures, we're going to see tonight, God also makes it a conversation about purpose. That he's got plans for you. That he has a will for the way that we're supposed to live when it comes to morality. But he also has a plan and a desire and a will when it comes to the purpose decisions of your life. Let's put that next slide up there. Your vocation, your home, your finances, your marriage, your family, church, how you're going to serve, where you're going to volunteer. There's more things on that list, but I think that's a, the, the, the majority of the decisions that we make when it comes to purpose. And what we're saying is through this series is that your life should always have a sense of flowing in the direction of God. There should be something inside of you that feels like you're moving in the direction of God's will for your life for both of these, whether it's the Emmaus scale or the Sodom and Gomorrah scale. There's a fascinating story in history that began in 1222 when England declared that April 23rd would be known as St. George's Day. Now, this story is, I would say, part of the mythology of Christianity, and, and, and I'm going to share that with you, but I, we're also going to share the real story. It's one of those examples of where, where the real story is better than the mythology that kind of created the fame of St. George's Day. And the, the mythology that, that kind of got, has been passed around for, for centuries is that there was a kingdom... And because there was a dragon that was there that needed to be fed, that they would set lambs out or other livestock. And eventually the dragon grew tired of the livestock and developed a taste for people. And so in order to satisfy this dragon and keep it from wiping out the whole town, they, they started a lottery system. So you would draw, right, a, a, a lottery, and then based on whether or not your name was, was drawn, that you would have to be given to the dragon. Now, they didn't know about tribute and hunger games, right? This is way before that, so no one could take their place. If your name came up, it was all up to you. So let me read you a little bit of the story. So what happens one day is the king's daughter's name is drawn. And the king tried everything that he could to use his power and his influence to get his daughter off the hook. But it was her turn to go to the dragon. 
It says, then did the king, right? It's written in Old English, which just adds, doesn't it, to it? it? says, then did the king to array his daughter like she should be wedded and embraced her, kissed her, and gave her his benediction and after led her to the place where the dragon was. Now George was passing by and asked the lady what was happening. She told him about the dragon and begged him to leave before it appeared and killed him too. Then said St. George, fair daughter, doubt you no thing hereof, for I shall help thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They work it in, don't they? It says, for God's sake, good night, go your way and abide not with me, for ye may not deliver me. Thus, as they spake together, the dragon appeared came running at them, and St. George, upon his horse, drew out his sword, garnished the dragon with the sign of the cross, and rode heartily against the dragon which came toward him, and he smote him with his spear. He hurt him sore and threw him to the ground, and after he said to the maid, deliver to me your girdle and bind it about the dragon's neck, and do not be afraid, and the dragon follows them into the city. Causing much panic and alarm until George told the people to not be afraid. Nay, doubt ye no thing without more. Believe ye in God and Jesus Christ and be baptized and I shall slay this dragon. Whatever it takes to get people to save, right? The king was baptized, followed by all his people, whereupon George killed the dragon, dragged it out of the city, and its body thrown into the field. It took an ox cart with four ox to drag this dragon out. It says, the king set up a church called Our Lady of St. George, and the site upon spring a fountain of living water, which healed the sick of everyone who drank. The mythology of Christianity, right? But there's a real story. There was a real St. George, And the real St. George was born in modern-day Turkey, and he was raised in a Christian family, a real person. His parents were Christians, and they eventually moved to Palestine, and George one day, through his, his, his sense of calling in life, joined the Roman legion and was such a successful soldier that eventually, this is all history here, this is the true part, right? You're thinking, why isn't this the story that created St. George's Day? Why is it the mythology? Because the history is so much better. He rose to the rank of the emperor's guard and Diocletian, who was one of the most treacherous emperors of the Roman Empire, came to power and George was a part of his personal guard. And when Diocletian began to order Christians to be killed, George refused. In fact, in history we know that he tore up the orders in public view. George was arrested, he was tortured, and he was beheaded for not denying Christ. Now, George, in his story, and his journey, eventually came to prominence, was called St. George's Cross. Let's throw that up. Now, many of you have seen this cross. It's a huge part of England's flag. You, you've, you've, you've seen it in the Olympics, right? When you're trying to figure out which flag belongs to what country, we, we've seen it. But this is the history and the story of this cross. It's St. George's Cross. And in 1222, England proclaimed that April 23rd is going to be St. George's Day. And much of the fame is because of the mythology, but the history is a powerful story for us. Because it's the same story that you and I have to live. Not as though probably in our lifetime will we ever face the kind of persecution that Diocletian unleashed in the Roman Empire, but there's a Diocletian in all of us. There is something inside of us that resists God's will 
And just as it was with St. George on his day of determination, there's got to be something that happens in you and something that happens inside of me that when those desires from our heart tries to displace Christ, who rightly sits on the throne of our heart and tries to get us to move in a direction that is opposite of God's will, something inside of you and something inside of me must stand and resist. Something inside of us has to take the image of the cross and understand that the only direction that we should ever be moving in is in the direction of our Father. George's courage is so powerful because he was willing to move in the direction of God no matter what the cost. This is important for us in this series Because what I'm suggesting to you is that when you get a vision for the direction of God, whether it be the plans of God or the ways of God, then all of a sudden, no matter what the cost, it pales in comparison. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it reads this way. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, To the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews does not make the ways of God the primary uh, teaching here. It's about the direction of God. And what what he's saying is that that if, if you're not submitted to the direction of God, then the ways of God, it begins to weight you down. So often in Christianity, when we're talking to people, we run too quickly to the conversation of morality, but what they really need is a vision for the direction of God, and all of a sudden the moral choices begin to take care of themselves. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's about direction. It's about plans. It's about purpose. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Listen to what it says about Jesus himself. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Jesus was willing to endure the death that he had to die because he had a vision for the direction that God had for his life. And the same will be true for us. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. There is a place of honor with you and your destiny. Just as Jesus had a destiny, you have a destiny. And so many times, the things that weigh us down are the same things that Paul was talking to the writer of Hebrews about. These are, there are moral issues that we're struggling with. And I think part of the revelation of this idea and understanding of directional living is that when you begin to really see the plans and the purposes that God has for you, and you get a vision for those plans and the purpose, then all of a sudden, the value that you place on these moral issues that have weighed you down, you begin to see them for what they are, and you begin to cast them aside. For the joy that was set before him, that may you and I find the joy of God's will over our lives for the plans and the purposes that he has for us. So let me talk a little bit about some of the lies that the devil whispers into our ear when it comes to this idea of directional living. Let me read you this phrase. I'm going to read it a couple of times. Moral submissiveness triggers plan permissiveness. Moral submissiveness triggers plan permissiveness. That you and I develop a sense of entitlement when we only see Christianity through a moral lens. This is what we begin to say to ourselves. 
Because I am faithful when it comes to the morality of Christianity, I've earned the right to make my own decisions when it comes to the plans and the purposes of God. When you begin to walk in this place of saying, you know what? I'm getting pretty good at conquering all these moral challenges. Maybe you've been walking with God for a certain amount of time and the moral things that you used to struggle with, you're not struggling with anymore. If this is the only thing, if this is the only way that you see Christianity, then all of a sudden the devil begins to whisper in your ear because you're so good at not doing the things that you're not supposed to do that now you've earned the right to decide the things that God wants to speak to you about in regards to plans and purposes. Because I... Should we list some things? All right. Maybe that you would be here tonight and you would say, because I don't look at pornography anymore and I've been clean for three years, then I've earned the right to work wherever I want to work. Maybe you would say, because, because I don't deal with lying anymore. Dishonesty was a huge part of my life, but, but, but I've not, it's, I can't even remember the last time I've lied, and now all of a sudden the devil says, now, you, you, what? you get to decide who you want to marry. Look at how good you've done over there. Your reward is a sense of entitlement. This is his whisper, to do what you want. Christianity isn't just the Sodom and Gomorrah scale, it's the Emmaus scale, it's not just the ways of God, it's the plans of God. Let me give you another lie that he whispers in your ear. This is a big one here. Narrative exclusivity triggers personal insignificance. The first one is about entitlement, this was, is about self-pity. Narrative exclusivity triggers personal insignificance because God only chose some people listen because God only chose some people you develop a sense that he doesn't have a plan for you now what does that mean as you begin to read through the Bible if you've been in there for any amount of time you begin to develop a realization that there were lots of other people living in the world with all the people that are central to the biblical narrative we're living. But we never hear about them. All the people that lived during Abraham's life, which we're going to look at him tonight, we think, where's their story? And the devil whispers this in our ear, because God only has a specific plan for certain people. And everybody else is just kind of caught up in the story. You're like a movie extra, right? We watch the... The Black Panther, right? In a couple of weeks, there are people who are stars and they get paid a star's wage. And then there are people, they didn't get paid a dime. They were just happy to be in the crowd, right? This is one of the lies that the devil whispers to you and he whispers to me. God had a plan for Abraham because he was a star in the story, but you're just an extra. But that's not true. God has a plan and a purpose that's just as important to him about you as it was for Abraham. We might not ever know your story. You, you might not ever be famous because of the story. But your part in the story that God is telling in this world to God is just as important as all the people that are going to be famous. 
And the devil whispers in your ear the lie that your story doesn't matter. And the reason why that lie is so powerful is because it gives you a sense of permission when it comes to making decisions about where you're going to live and what you're going to do for a living and who you're going to marry, how many kids you're going to have and what you do with your money. You begin to think, if I don't do these things right, it doesn't matter because I'm not a main player in the story. And God says, but you're the star of your destiny and your purpose matters to him. It matters to him. Something inside of us has got to become wise of the lies of the enemy. That just because I'm doing well with my morality doesn't give me permission to just make my own decisions when it comes to plans. And even though you might feel like no one knows who you are, don't let the lie slip in that your destiny isn't important. If that were the case, you wouldn't be here. He birthed you into this world because he has a plan that you're supposed to fulfill and nobody else is going to do it but you. And just as much a part of you fulfilling your destiny has to do with you making good moral decisions, it also has to do with you making good decisions when it comes to the plans of God. So let's look a little bit at Abraham. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Now, we're picking Abraham because he's one of the most central people in the Bible, in all of Scripture. And when you begin to read these stories through the lens of the question, is directional living really present? In, In the sense that, does God give just as much emphasis to his plans as he does ways, you might be surprised at what you find. Genesis 11, verse 27 says, this is account of Terah's family. Terah was the father of Abram. Now his name's not changed to Abraham, so that's Abraham. It's Abram. Nahor and Haran, these brothers, right? Haran was the father of Lot, but Haran died in Ur of Chaldees, the land of his birth, while his father Terah was still living. Meanwhile, Abram and Nahor both married, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, which eventually becomes Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah. Milcah is, and her sister Iscah were daughters of Nahor's brothers Haran. So they married their nieces, right? And that's where we all say, ooh, I know. But Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. Now listen, it says, one day Terah took his son Abram, his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and his grandson Lot, his son Haran's child, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped at Haran and settled there. And Terah lived 205 years and died, died while still at Haran. Now let's keep going. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, we understand this to be the Abrahamic covenant. This is the beginning of the birth of a nation of Israel. Now, we could keep going, but what you're going to find is you continue to read, God does not speak to Abram about anything that is moral in nature. Don't you find that curious? I mean, if it were me, you would think this would be the perfect time to insert the story of the Ten Commandments. Why are you going to wait centuries to deposit the conversation of morality and the story of the birth of a nation? Why wouldn't you have that conversation with the man who was the father of the nation. 
right? I mean, if you're going to set something into motion, right, because this is what we would done because of the Christianity that we've been taught is that the moral conversation is more important than the plan conversation. And that if you get the moral conversation right, the plan will come together. But I think what you find as you begin to study scripture, God deals with us in the opposite, and I think the reason he does that is because it is the opposite, is that when you get a vision for the plans and the purposes of God, the moral stuff is a lot easier to lay down. When you look at Abram's calling, he talks to him about where he's supposed to live, affirms who he's married to, and he speaks to him indirectly about his vocation because he calls him to a nomadic life. And the only way that you can earn a living as a nomad in Abraham's day is to be a shepherd, to keep livestock. Everything about Abram's calling has to do with the plans of God. Where he's going to live, who he's going to be with, his family and his vocation. He also leaves Nahor behind. This is important for us. And if you know anything about the story of the Bible, you know that Nahor plays an important part of the story of the birth of Israel because this is where, at some point, Isaac goes and finds his wife. This is where Jacob goes and finds his wife. Is that God separated this family because he wanted there to be a family that was not subjected to the paganism of the land of Canaan. So when it came time for these young men to marry, that they would be able to go back and find wives who were not subject to pagan worship. Powerful, isn't it? Why is that important? Because if you're a parent and you're making decisions about where you're supposed to live, it's not just about you. It's about your kids. And it's about their destiny. It's about their future. It's about where they're supposed to be. And you're just transportation to get them there. And if the people that were responsible for you didn't do a good job, then that's no excuse to do a poor job with yours. If you're a parent and you're not having a conversation with God and you're, you're in a position to where you can make some decisions right now about where you're supposed to live and the vocation that you're supposed to call it and you're a parent, you need to understand it's not just about you. You're just like Nahor. God's got a plan for your children, and he wants your children to be in a certain place to set them up for success, for their future, their destiny. You might say, well, Fred, maybe he didn't have a conversation with Abraham because he was morally superior. Yeah, we know that's not the truth. And all the wives in here can really say amen to that. Because, verse 10, at the time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. And listen to what this moral, moral superior person did. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, look, you're, you're a beautiful woman. But when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him and we can save her. And Abram said, but I want you to know I will lay down my life for you and do whatever it takes to protect you. No, that's not what he said. So this is what he says. Please tell them that you are my sister. Now, how would this conversation go with you, those of you who are married? I'll tell you how it would go. Please tell them that you are my sister and that they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. It's horrible. 
And if you don't see how egregious this is, then we've got a men's ministry here that we'd like to introduce you to. (laughs) Are you with me here? This is the man that God has chosen. He could have picked anybody in the whole world. He picks this guy. And when he calls him, he doesn't talk to him about morality, not one time. I'm thinking Sarah's thinking, now God, you told him where we were supposed to live, our vocation, our family. Maybe you could have helped this guy out a little bit on some morality, right? Because now I'm going to have to suffer for it. Now, you know the story, they arrive in Egypt and you can read it. It's interesting that, that, that as you keep reading through the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these people are morally corrupt, morally corrupt. But all throughout the birth of Israel, God postpones the conversation of morality and everything is about plans and purposes where they're supposed to go, who they're supposed to marry, how many children they're supposed to have. Time and time and time again, the story is all about the plan and the ways come after. And I think that God puts it in this order on purpose. And I think this is the theme that Jesus picks up with. When he gets to Matthew 16, when he's talking about dying to self and bearing the cross, it's it's about the direction in regards to the plans of God and that when we get a vision for his plans and his purposes that I'm telling you, those things that you used to hold, hold dear that are moral issues, that it makes it easy for you to begin to cast them aside like the writer of Hebrews says. All right, I'm gonna keep going. The devil has lies when it comes to the plans of God, but God's got an answer. He's got direction. And the nature of God is to reveal. It's not to hide. His nature is not to hide. It is to reveal. So let me just give you a few practical examples if you're in a place of making a decision when it comes to the plans of God. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about making decisions when it comes to moral choices, but we're talking about making decisions when it comes to plans. I think many of us have grown up in the church, right? We've been inundated with teachings about how to make decisions when it comes to moral issues, but, 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 we, but we just we're adrift when it comes to plans, the purposes of God. I think one of the most important things that you can do when you're making decisions would fall under the category of the plans of God and the purposes of God is is what we call value-based decision-making. It means that you make a list of the things that you value, that you feel like that God has said to you, these are important things that you're supposed to cherish. And then as you're making your decision, if they violate those values, then the answer is no. Because God's not going to ask you to go against the values that he's put in you. So let me give you a practical example. Back in 2007, when Vanessa and I knew that we were coming to the end of the season of the church where we were at then, I had been there for all of my adult Christian life. For, for 18 years, I had been a part of this, of this church. And we knew that our season was coming to a close and we had a choice that we needed to make. And so we did this very thing that we're talking to you about because we could have gone and lived anywhere. We could have gone and done a lot of things. 
We sat down and we made a list and we knew that God had put some values in our heart. And one of them is that we wanted our children to grow up near their grandparents. We didn't want our children to grow up in a place. Now, these don't have to be your values. I'm just saying they were mine. The values are negotiable. You track it with me? Values are personal. We knew we wanted our kids to grow up around cousins. This was our value. I'm not saying this is yours, right? You've got to make your own list. And you've got to share this list, right? You've got to share this list with people that you trust. And we did that same thing. We sat down with people that we trusted and showed them these values. And they asked us some hard questions. One of us was we knew that there had to be an element of faith. We knew that God was calling us to take a step of faith. It was something that, that was on our values list. We knew we wanted Vanessa to be able to stay at home. We homeschooled. We've homeschooled our kids all the way through, getting ready to graduate our first one. We knew this was part, and that's not your value. You with me? It was our value. So we knew that whatever the opportunity was going to be, it had to be economically feasible enough to not violate that value. For us, it had to be shape-deferring. That's another sermon for another time, but it's a book by Eric Reese. We knew it was going to be in an urban setting because we love to be in cities. Something for both Vanessa and I comes alive. We like to go visit the country. We like to be in a rural area. I grew up in a rural area. But something inside of us, we've always known we're going to live in a place where there's activity that's densely populated. There's, there's, just, there's life happening. We wanted to be in a place that was ethnically diverse. These, are, these aren't necessarily, right? Not your values. These are ours. But you got to have a list of values you make when you're making plan-based decisions, purpose-based decisions. And the last one is you got to be willing to cast some lots. We joked about this a couple of weeks ago. Casting lots, which is basically rolling dice. Into, right, when they picked the disciples, it just, it's hilarious. That's how they chose who was going to replace Judas. But that was a culturally acceptable practice in their day to create a scenario that only God could control because they wanted to have a sense of his will. You can find ways. Ask God for signs. I know for us, we knew that if our house wasn't going to sell, that we weren't going to be able to come. And so that was a fleece that we laid out that it would sell at a certain price within a certain time. And that was something that was outside of our control. You can still cast lots today. You just do it in a way that's culturally, cultural norms. That was our list. And all of that brought us here. Did we pray? Yes. Did we fast? Yes. Did we do all the other things that go with good decision making? Yes. All the things that you've been taught, but many of you have never been taught this kind of stuff before. And these are the kinds of things that you've got to be willing to put into practice when it comes to making plans for your life. As we said it a couple of weeks ago, hearing God isn't about listening harder. It's about positioning your life better. I'm going to invite Nathaniel to come back up and he's going to play the keys for us as we're wrapping up tonight. Can I just share with you too, don't wait until you've got to make a decision to start doing this stuff. Don't, don't wait. Start doing, you might say, well, Fred, I don't, I don't see us having to make any decisions when it comes to the, kind of the plans and the purposes of our life. Yeah, I don't think Abram was expecting for God to show up and ask him to shift, right? Sometimes God, he just comes and you're not expecting it. And the question is, are you going to be ready? If you're married and you've got a family, if you're not married, if you're single, begin to connect with what are some things that I value, things that are non-negotiable for me. Start figuring out what that list is now. It might be that you need to start thinking about what that list needs to look like for your future spouse. If you're married and you don't have kids, start talking about now things that you value when it comes to parenting. 
I'm telling you, when you begin to connect with the core values of your life, as it opportunities are presented to you to make decisions, those decisions gain incredible clarity because I believe that God speaks to us through the values that he instills inside of us. Sometimes those values overlap, but sometimes those values are very different. You might have made a very different decision if you had been in our shoes because your values would have been really different. And what I would say to you is that's okay. The question is, are you making decisions based on the values that God has instilled in your heart? Even if it takes you in a direction that's different than what other people would prefer. But the other piece is this idea of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago was positioning your life. If you don't have one of those green books, they're free for you. If you're visiting the church, grab one. It's called Praxis. Somebody in a blue shirt can give it to you. Those pathways are the way that you position your life to hear God's voice. And it's the same thing. Don't wait until you've got to make a big decision to try to start to catch up on those things. Live your life in a place of being well positioned with God so that hearing his voice and feeling his direction almost becomes second nature. So when it comes time to make decisions that are life altering, you feel the weight of the decision, but you don't feel the stress of the possible mistake because you know that you know his voice. And then he's going to speak to you with great clarity. Stand with me. Father, I pray for every person that's here tonight that's got some big decisions that they're having to make. I pray for every person that's here tonight that's having to make decisions about where they're going to live and who they're going to marry and about how many children they're going to have. They're making decisions right now, Father, about, about their finances, that maybe they're having to retool their budget for some reason or another. And, and, and they're, they're having to ask some questions about how they're going to spend that money, Father. That I pray, Father, that, that they would begin to see all of these decisions are a part of their Christianity. I pray that you would begin to Lead them on a journey to hear your voice, to know your will, and to believe that you've got a plan and a purpose for each one of them. I pray, Father, for the people that are here tonight and maybe this idea of being in a place of having to make a big decision is not where they are, but Father, it could be that maybe they've just only ever seen Christianity through the lens of morality, and I pray that tonight that you would begin to broaden that for them that they would begin to see that you have a plan and a purpose for every part of their life. I pray for the person that maybe is here tonight who's struggling with some moral things. And I pray, Father, that, that you would give them a vision for their future. That you would help them begin to see the person that you've called and created them to be. Father, even now as we pray, I have such a sense that somebody's here right now. And as the practice nine interns were up there, this is what you thought. I want you to hear it from me. That, that this is what you thought. I could never do anything like that. Father, for whoever that person is, Father, right now, I pray that you would begin to give them a vision for their future. We pray, Father, you would set them free from self-condemnation. Father, we pray that you would set them free from that feeling of that God doesn't have a plan for me. I pray, Father, that you would begin to give them a glimpse of the future that you have for them, that you would help them begin to their, their heart to get around this idea that they're the star and the central player and the purpose that you've created for them, Father. And I pray 
that you would begin to stir something inside of them. And in doing so, all of a sudden, these moral struggles, God, that they would begin to realize that it's just stuff that's weighing me down and they would cast it aside. And they would begin to run after the purpose that you have, the plans that you would unfold in front of them. Come on, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.